Let me invite you now to open your Bible to the book of Hosea. Today we have a rather lengthy scripture reading. We will begin in chapter 11 and continue on through chapter 13. And uh, you may wonder why. Hopefully after the message is over you will know why. Uh, but today we're going to be looking at sort of a review of redemptive history under the Old Testament or Old Covenant as God reaches back uh, to communicate with his people what's going on. Um, as you know, as we've been going through Hosea together, the book is a constant oscillation between the theme of judgment and the theme of hope. Judgment and hope. Judgment and restoration. And you see that played out continually. And today's reading is more of the judgment side of that dualism. Next week will be more of the restoration hope. But we'll try to get a little hope in here somewhere. Because, you know, we need it, don't we? Hear now the word of the Lord as we begin reading chapter 11 of Hosea, verse 12. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit, but Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return, hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your God. A merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. Ephraim has said, ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for my, uh, myself. In all my labors, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. I am the Lord your God. From the land of Egypt, I will again make you dwell in tents, as in the days of the appointed feast. I spoke to the prophets. It was I who multiplied visions, and through the prophets gave parables. If there is iniquity in Gilead, they shall surely come to not, nothing. In Gilgal, they sacrifice bulls. Their altars are also like stone heaps on the furrows of the field. Jacob fled to the land of Aram where Israel served for a wife, and for a wife he guarded sheep. By a prophet the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt, and by a prophet he was guarded. Ephraim has given bitter provocation, so his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal, and died. And now they sin more and more. 
and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifices, kiss calves. Therefore, they shall be like the morning mist or like the dew that goes early away, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor or like smoke from a window. But I am the Lord your God. From the land of Egypt, you know no God but me. And besides me, there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled. Their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. So I am to them like a lion, like a leopard. I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breasts, and there I will devour them like a lion, as a wild beast would rip them open. He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are, your, are, are all your rulers, those whom, of whom you said, Give me a king and princes? I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept in store. The pangs of childbirth come for him, for he is an unwise son. For at the right time he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. I shall ransom them from the powers of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes." Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come, rising from the wilderness, and his fountain shall dry up. His spring shall be parched. It shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. Samaria shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces, and their pregnant women ripped open. This is God's Word. Let us pray. Father, we pray today that as we hear the word of the prophet, you would give us an ear to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Soften our hearts. Make them pliable and tender and responsive and receptive to the truth. And we pray that we will see Jesus and Him only as we look at this passage. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, if you were to ask people how their life is going or how their business is going or a question about their work or their school life, I suspect that some people might be upbeat. Business is booming. Work is more rewarding. Uh, life is good. Uh, the sun is shining. Others will be facing insurmountable problems. Business is tough. Clients are hard to find. Work is a struggle for me every day. It's a war. Perhaps talk of redundancy is in the air, or exams are looming, or you're worried about how well you'll do. And I guess most of us could put ourselves in one or two categories. Triumph or disaster. Or at least put different parts of our lives into those categories. I remember when I was in the seventh grade, we were forced, and I underlined the word forced, 
to memorize a poem by Rudyard Kipling called If. You know that poem, If You Can Keep Your Head When All About You. Everybody's losing theirs, and it ends up with You Shall Be a Man, My Son. And so I memorized that poem. Uh, can't remember that much of it, but remember some of it. But I remember thinking, yeah, you'll be a man because you'll overcome. And, uh, but he had this line in that poem. He says, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same, you'll be a man, my son. Now, he never really told us how to do that, but he told us it'd be good if we did. Chapters 12 and 13 of Hosea equip us to face disasters in life. And they do so by teaching us some lessons from history. There is value in what has come before us. I know that uh, most people I have run into are not so much in reading history as they are in making history. They want to make history. But it's important to read history and understand the value of it. And here we're going to look at three characters in the history of Israel that are woven through these chapters to basically point out to Hosea's audience, uh, this is how you are now and this is how it has always been in terms of a covenant relationship with God. And so first we look at the lesson of Jacob. Jacob's all over this passage. And Jacob teaches us we are who we are by the grace of God. If there's ever been a character in the Bible that was completely enveloped in the grace of God, it was Jacob. But Jacob's a very frustrating character because here's Jacob in a nutshell. He strived and conned and schemed and finagled and worked incessantly to take and grasp what God would freely give him. By grace. Now some of us don't know that about ourselves. We got a lot of Jacob in us. I mean we're, we're people who live by our own resources and manage life the way we manage life. And we never learn that Jacob never learned how to rest in the grace of God. And so he was a, he was a striver. Now, it's not only our triumphs and disasters that make us who we are. Ultimately, it's not our triumphs and disasters that define us. Instead, it is the grace of God. Hosea takes us back here to the story of Jacob. Abraham was the great founding father of God's people. He had a son named Isaac. And Isaac had twins named Esau and Jacob. And God gave Jacob a new name. He named Jacob Israel. So uh, the interchange of Jacob and Israel happens often. What I have noticed in my reading of the Bible is that when God brings Jacob up to his people, it's usually not a good thing. <laughs> and that's what we see here. But it's the name by which his descendants were known, Israel. Hosea is playing on this. The story of Israel, the nation, parallels the story of Jacob, that is Israel, the person. What was that story? Well, Hosea begins in the womb where Jacob grabbed hold of Esau's heel as they came out together. Here's the passage in Genesis chapter 25. The children struggled together within her and she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, 
and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, that's why his name's Esau, Esau means red. Uh, and all, all his body was like a hairy cloak, so he was a hairy red baby. And they called his name Esau, Red. Afterwards, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. What does Jacob mean? Heel grabber. Pretty well common way to name people. I guess the way you're born is the handle you get for the rest of your life. But what does it mean to say that Jacob was a heel grabber? Jacob means he grasp. Jacob was a grasper. If someone is ruthless in their pursuit of money or advancement, then we say they are grasping. So it was with Jacob. He even came out of the womb that way as a precursor to the pattern of his life. But Jacob also became an idiom for deceit. Jacob is a deceiver. He is the poster child for a con man. If you read his life, he is a con man. He's a flim-flam guy. He's a shyster. He's a cheater, and uh, he lives his life by his wits. He lives his life conning everyone he can possibly con. And that is because when Isaac came toward the end of his life and he had to pass on the inheritance and bless the elder son, of course, who was Esau and not Jacob. And in Genesis chapter 27... We read how Isaac told Esau to go and hunt some wild game and prepare it as a meal, which he would bring to Abraham and then would pass on the blessing to Esau. But Isaac's wife, Rebekah, whose favorite son was Jacob, some people called Jacob a mama's boy. Well, he wasn't really that, to be fair. But he favored his mom's side of the family. She got where she got the same way. Though, uh, and so here's what happened. Uh, Rebecca overheard this plan between Abraham and Esau. So while Esau's out hunting, she got Jacob to kill two domestic goats. She then prepared the meal to taste like wild game, while Jacob dressed in Esau's clothes and wrapped animal skins around his arms so that he smelt like and felt like Esau, who was naturally hairy. Isaac said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He was blind at the time. Are you really my son Esau, he asked, and Jacob answered, I am. So Isaac blessed Jacob, and the promise of God passed to Jacob, and God's people came from Jacob's line. The promised Messiah came from Jacob's line and not from Esau's. All this because Jacob was a deceiver. Israel, the person was a deceiver. And if you look at chapter 11, verse 12, through chapter 12, verse 1, we see it said, Ephraim, which is Israel, Jacob, has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God and is faithful to God. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehoods and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria and the oil is carried to Egypt. Here's the point. These verses tell us that Israel the nation was also a deceiver. They had made a covenant with God. They swore promises to him, but now they are off making treaties both to the north and the south. Assyria and Egypt. 
The oil being carried down to Egypt is tribute money for protection, to seal the deal. The flimsy and elusive nature of these commitments is emphasized with the image of Ephraim, another name for Israel, feeding on the wind and chasing it. Now tell me something. How hungry are you going to be feeding on the wind? Think about it. Trying to catch the wind. He says their actions are like, it's like somebody trying to capture the wind and be nourished by feeding on it. It's futility to try to herd the wind. And a meal of wind is never going to nourish you no matter how much time you spend at it. Similarly, Egypt and Assyria will never nourish the needs of Israel. Nor will they bend to Israel's purposes. A contract with the wind would provide about as much security as a covenant with Egypt and Assyria. Now the reference to Judah is a little more ambiguous in the original text than the translation of the ESV. The NIV says this, so listen carefully. Judah still walks with God. This is ESV. Judah still walks with God and is faithful to God, as opposed to the NIV, which says this. Judah is unruly against God, even against the faithful Holy One. Now, there may be some deliberate ambiguity here. I'm not sure. Hosea does not use Yahweh, or the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, God's covenant name. Instead, he uses a generic name for God. Judah is faithful to a deity, but is it Yahweh? Israel is deceitful. Is Judah any better? It's up to Judah's readers, uh, Hosea's Judean readers, to decide. Is deceit the way forward? The image of the wind suggests not. But what lessons do we learn from history? Does Jacob triumph over Esau because he's deceitful? Does he become a great nation because he's grasping for it? Is that the lesson we're supposed to learn? Go out there and grasp. Get it. But as we come back to the story of Israel the person, Esau, as you can imagine, is not at all pleased with what Jacob had done. Now, Esau was much more of an outdoorsy, athletic man's man and you got to know that Esau has a grudge a deep grudge and he's not pleased at all and so Jacob has to flee for his life he has to run away at this point he has nothing except God's promise and on the run from Esau he collapses at night and begins to beg God for help and God comes to him and he speaks to him and he gives him a vision of heaven opened, a sign of his grace. And Jacob calls the place Bethel, which is house of God. He met God at Bethel, says Hosea. And there God spoke with us, the Lord, the God of hosts. The Lord is his memorial name. Years later, Jacob is still on the run. I, I laugh at Jacob so much. He's such a kind guy. And then he goes to get his wife with Uncle Laban, and there's only one better con in the Bible than Jacob, and it's Laban. Which tells me for all you con men out there, and all you con women, there's always somebody better than you. Somebody can do it better than you. But he reaped what he sowed. But that's another story. So Jacob's on the run, and he has to prepare to meet Esau again, not knowing exactly how Esau's going to react after all these years. And so the night before he expects to meet Esau, he's alone because he's already sent his family ahead of him to try to water down Esau's anger. You know, what a guy, you know. But he does this. 
And so God comes to him in the form of an angel, and Jacob wrestles with the angel, and they wrestle all night until the dawn is breaking, and Jacob overcomes the angel and wrestles away a blessing from God. This is the moment when God gives him the name Israel, which means strives with God or fights with God. Hosea recalls the story in verses 3 and 4. In the womb he took his brother by the heel and in his manhood he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. God's people are just like their ancestor. They are deceiving and grasping and the Lord has a charge against them just as he did against Jacob. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to the ways, his ways will repay him according to his deeds. So Jacob lived a life of pure deceit and grasping. And so God comes against Jacob with this indictment. But Jacob wrestles with God and finally seeks his grace. He wept and sought his favor. So Hosea is saying to his readers and hearers, you're like your father Jacob. You are full of deceit. You are constantly grasping. So God has a charge against you, an indictment against you. But learn the lesson of history. Jacob became Israel not through grasping and deceit, but because he sought God's grace. It was not his grasping that made him who he was. It was God's grace. Kipling was right. Triumph and disaster are imposters. In this sense, they do not make us who we are. They do not define us. We are who we are by God's grace. At the two crisis moments of his life, Jacob sought God and found God. He sought God and heard God. Look again at chapter 12, verses 4 and 5. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel. And there God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. Jacob fought for God's grace. But how do you and I fight for grace? Surely it is not grace if we have to wrestle it from God. Grace is God's blessing to us as a gift for no good reason other than his love for us. You can't earn it. You can't win it. If you could, it wouldn't be grace. So how can we fight for grace? For that matter, how does Jacob defeat God in a wrestling match? For that is what Hosea says in chapter 12, verse 4. Jacob overcame who? God. The best answer I can give you for this is the following. God makes himself weak so he can bless us. That's what he does with Jacob. He lets himself be defeated by Jacob so that he can bless Jacob. And that is what he does at the cross. He lets himself be defeated by humanity so that he can bless us. Strength in weakness. Two, God makes us strong so he can bless us. Verse 6 is literally a return with our God. So you, by the help of your God, return, hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your God. God himself empowers us to fight for him for his grace, or to fight him for his grace. It's a battle he wants us to win. We fight for grace through grace. The idea of wrestling with God captures the urgency, the passion, the fervor of our need for grace and desire for grace and love for grace. We are to be people who fervently seek 
God's grace, who are passionate about His grace. But we do it in God's power. God fought against Jacob, but He also empowered Jacob's victory. Our longing for God is evidence of God's work in us. Our seeking after God is proof of God's work in us. This is often, or that is often, the dynamic of our relationship with God. What do we do when we don't feel passionate about our relationship with God? What do we do when we're spiritually stale or flat? Or maybe we acknowledge the truths of the gospel are amazing, but they don't feel amazing at this moment. What do you do? The answer is you fight. You fight for God's blessings. You fight for his favor. You pray until he moves you. You search his word until he blesses you. You think of yourself in wrestling in prayer for God's blessings. But know this. When you wrestle with God, and win his blessing. God has not only fought against you, he's also fought for you. He has empowered your longing. Why? Because he wants a relationship with you. He wants a relationship with you. He wants you to pursue him. He wants you to long for him. He wants you to seek him. And in this seeking to find him and to know him and to love him. And so learn from Jacob a valuable principle of history. We are who we are by God's grace. That is certainly not the message of our culture. Our culture says you can shape and take hold and change your own identity. You can make yourself the person you want to be. Work hard. Pass your exams. Make it in business. Climb the career ladder. Grasp. Look after number one. Verse 3 informs us. In the womb he took his brother by the heel and in his manhood he strove with God. Hosea's message is this. Be a grasping person, but do not be like young Jacob, grasping at people. Be like the old Jacob, grasping at God, seeking God, waiting for God, struggling with God, begging God, as it were, for his grace. Well, that's one guy Hosea points back to. The other one is Moses. And Moses will teach us we have what we have. By the grace of God. And so according to chapter 12, verse 8, Ephraim says, Ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. Of course, Ephraim is another name for Israel. And Israel boasts in her wealth. I have found wealth for myself. Hosea's call is to return with God's help. But Israel's boast is, I've earned it. I don't need God's help right now. Thank you very much. But Israel's boast is, I've earned it. I don't need his help. Same temptation of the church at Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3 verse 17. The risen Lord says to them, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. This attitude is certainly prevalent upon people in the Western world. I have what I have through my achievements. I'm a self-made person. I don't need God. I don't need anybody. I can handle it myself. So Hosea refers to the next period in the story, story as Israel, the man who went to Egypt to escape famine. And there in Egypt, over a 400-year period, you know, Israel, the man, becomes Israel, the nation. 
But there in Egypt, the nation was enslaved. God, however, heard their cries, Exodus 2. He called Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. He reveals his name to Moses as Yahweh. Uh, the covenant God of Israel. He rescues his people out of Egypt. He provides for them as he leads them through the wilderness. He brought them into the land. He had promised to Abraham it was inhabited by the Canaanites, but God defeated the Canaanites and gave his people the land as a gift flowing with milk and honey. Hosea recalls this and says, I have been the Lord your God ever since you came out of Egypt. I revealed myself to you as the Lord and have been your covenant God ever since. But Hosea continues the story in chapter 12, verses 12 through 13. Jacob fled to the land of Aram. There Israel served for a wife, and for a wife he guarded sheep by a prophet. Uh, the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt, and by a prophet he was guarded. Here's another episode from the life of Jacob. When Jacob fled from Esau, he went to live with Uncle Laban. I mentioned him earlier. There he fell in love with Laban's daughter, Rachel. And so Genesis chapter 29 tells the story of how Jacob spent seven years tending sheep for Laban, earning a dowry to win Rachel. In fact, Laban tricked Jacob and married him to his elder daughter Leah, so Jacob worked a further seven years to earn the right to marry Rachel. Con man got conned. Went to bed with Rachel and woke up with Leah. Bad scene. That's Jacob. And so Jacob's actions are reflected further. God sins. Uh, in fact, uh, it looks like Hosea's got the chronology wrong having told the story of how God rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt it seems to be slipping back in time the key however is the word guarded which appears in verses 12 and 13 Jacob guarded sheep in the same way God sent a Moses to guard his people the story of Jacob is recalled to highlight the way Moses shepherded the people of God the focus is not at this point on Jacob, but on Moses. Here God's people are not like Jesus, uh, Jacob, but like his sheep. But God cared for them and provided for them through Moses. They have what they have through God's care and provision. Moses himself is not named in these verses. He's simply described as a prophet, but he was a prophet. Perhaps the point of this is to put the focus on God himself and his word. The one who shepherded God's people was not so much Moses as God himself through the words of Moses. This resonates with an intriguing change. He, Jacob, met God at Bethel. But we might expect him to say, and there God spoke with him. But in fact, Hosea says, and there God spoke with us. In other words, the word spoken to Jacob is still spoken to us. Bethel was the place where Jacob met God, and we too can meet with God through his word. The Bible is our Bethel, the place where we meet God. The Sunday sermon is your church is a Bethel, a place where you can meet God in his word. His word is expounded, and above all, Jesus is our Bethel. He is the word of God in whom we meet God. It is by his word that we are fed and guarded, just as Moses fed and guarded the people in his day. But Israel aroused God's anger and provoked God. And the worst of it is 
The word merchant in chapter 12, verse 7, is literally Canaanite. The Canaanite uses dishonest scales and loves to defraud. God chose his people to be a light to the nations. He cast the Canaanite nations out of the promised land so that there might be a place on earth in which his goodness could reign and be put on display. But now his people have become Canaanites, pagans. They're no different than the world around them. And so God says, I will again make you to dwell in tents. He says to his people, what he did to the Canaanites, he's going to do to them. He's going to cast them out of the land. And as we saw in Hosea 9, the story's going to go in reverse. God led his people from tents into the promised land. Now he's going to cast them out of the promised land back into tents. They will be fleeting and fragile. Their love is like a morning mist. Now they themselves will be like a morning mist. In other words, they will soon vanish. God is going to be to his people like a lion, a leopard, a bear, ripping them open and devouring them. What is the lesson of history? We have what we have by God's grace. But I am the Lord your God, chapter 13, verse 4. I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me, there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled, and their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. So often, we draw the wrong lessons from history. We see our prosperity, we see our triumphs, and conclude that we're good people, we're clever people, we're hardworking people who have earned our reward. Our prosperity leads to a kind of self-confidence and self-reliance. When all the time it should lead us to brokenness and heartfelt thanks to God. Our genes, our upbringing, our education, our character, our very breath are all from God. My job's title, my beautiful home, my children's success, my church's success. We're all ready to claim credit. How many times have we prayed for something, a job interview, an exam, a work project, an evangelistic event, and when it was successful, attributed that success not to answered prayer, but to our own effort and skill. Our culture says, I have what I have through my effort. I'm a self-made man. Our culture says, I spend what I have because I earned it. It's my home. I can do with it what I like. But God says, I cared for you. I fed you. I have been the Lord your God since you came out of Egypt. The reality is not I can spend what I have because I earned it, but I owe God what I have because he gave it to me. And finally... The lesson of King Saul. We will be what we will be by God's grace. When the nation of Israel first lived in the land, they were ruled over by God himself. But eventually they asked for a king like the nations around them. They rejected God's kingship in favor of human kingship. And they wanted someone they could see who would rescue them and protect them and be their leader and their king. And so God gave them Saul. And I imagine if you'd have been there and you had seen Saul, you would have voted for him. He was a head taller than everybody else. Probably a really good-looking guy. But he wasn't a very good king. Here's the problem. Human kings are always a disappointment. And Saul's kingdom reign ended in failure. A human king cannot protect you, and especially a human king cannot protect you when God is your enemy himself. 
Much of Hosea's ministry was conducted during, listen carefully, the good old days. The economy was booming. The nation enjoyed peace. It was all too easy to draw the conclusion that sin doesn't really matter. People who sin seem to prosper just as much as the righteous and sometimes more at the expense of the righteous. But Hosea has an explanation. Their sin is being stored up. It's not that God failed to notice what is happening, or it's not that he's indifferent. Paul makes the same point in Romans 2, verses 4 through 5, that the delay of God's judgment is not a sign of his neglect, but of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience. He is giving humanity an opportunity to repent. God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance but because of your hard and impenitent heart you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed in the Bible pangs of childbirth is often used as a picture of suffering before the coming of God Hosea uses it this way but it's clear for his hearers the coming of God this time will mean judgment They should read the signs of the times, ready themselves for the coming judgment by repenting of their sin. Yet God is the deliverer who defeats our enemies, even our last and greatest enemies. If you look at chapter 13, verse 14, Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where's your sting? This is Hosea's final lesson from history. We will be what we will be by God's grace. As with the previous two lessons, our culture does not say this. Our culture says, I can secure my future if I work hard enough and save hard enough, if I invest correctly, if I insure. People go off to university to secure their future. Every day people go to work to secure a future for themselves and their children. People pour themselves into their business to secure its future. Uh, At the weekends, they do do do-it-yourself projects to maintain a home for the future. Triumph and disaster matter so much to us because we think they define our future. But the reality is... We cannot secure our future. Certainly not against death. What is it that gives us confidence for the future? Think about your answer. Does it suggest that you think you are what you are and you have what you have and you're going to be what you be going to be through your effort and achievement or are you trusting God's grace? Paul provides a commentary on this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where he tells us that death has no victory, it has no sting. The sting of death is sin. We might suppose that death itself is the sting of sin. If you indulge in sin, it will sting you to death. Sin does lead to death, but Paul says sin is the sting of death. And the point is that there's something worse than physical death. And that's spiritual death, eternal separation from God. However... For Christians, our sins have been dealt with. Christ has died for our sins. Paul says that at the beginning of uh, 1 Corinthians 15, Hosea talks about blood guilt. But our guilt has been atoned for through the blood of Jesus Christ. He has redeemed us from death. So death is disarmed. And where is the victory of death? Look, Paul says, being handed over to us, God gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. But 
If you look at verses 14 through 16, I'd really rather end without paying much attention to this. There are two endings into this story. The first ending is death is defeated and victory is ours through Jesus. But the second ending is Hosea 13, 14 through 16. It's horrible. Some of Israel heard God's message, returned to God, and were saved. The nation as a whole, though, ignored him. The Assyrian army came and besieged the capital, Samaria, and crushed the people, wiping them from history. Their story came to an end. Israel appeared to thrive. He may flourish among his brothers, says Hosea in 15, verse 15. It looks successful. It triumphs, but it's misunderstood. It's triumph. And as a result, God's judgment was just over the horizon. As the east wind would come and bring disaster, her fertility would be gone, her storehouse plundered, her people dashed to the ground. Samaria must bear her guilt. And so it will be for all who do not return to God. So Hosea's message comes to us saying, You must return to your God, maintain love and justice, and wait for your God always. I will deliver this people from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these chapters in the book of Hosea, which point us to the past to show us that people haven't really changed much, that just the same struggles and problems people in redemptive history have had are repeated over and over again as we forget God in the land of prosperity. When our needs are met, when we're not starving and struggling and fighting and facing disaster, it is so easy for us to cruise, shift everything into neutral, and take the credit for ourselves. Please help us remember that we are what we are by the grace of God. We have what we have by the grace of God. And we're going to be what we're going to be in eternity by the grace of God. Now, Lord, as we continue to worship, may we give as people who get that. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.